Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the future of innovation in the Defense Department could turn on acquisition, not technology. The best places to work in the federal government and why they're so great. And the Pentagon's people problem gets worse. It's Wednesday, July 20th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. A new multi-year IT modernization plans coming from the Internal Revenue Service. IRS Chief Information Officer Nancy Seeger writes the update will reflect the jobs the agency took on in the American Rescue Plan and the Taxpayer First Act. Seeger says her agency will release the plan within the next year. Ten companies will get $10 million each to develop new technologies for the Defense Department. The awards are the first under a pilot program to accelerate new technology into the department. Under Secretary of Defense for Research and Engineering Heidi Hsu says the program's goal is to bridge what some call the valley of death, where small companies can't survive long enough to earn a government contract. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The lineup for defense talks is filling in. The director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, is one of the headliners. You can see the rest of the lineup and sign up for defense talks September 15th at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. One of the Defense Department's newest job postings is for the leader of the Defense Innovation Unit. DIU's director now, Mike Brown, will leave at the end of September. Stan Soloway is president and CEO of Solero Strategies. He's former deputy undersecretary of defense for acquisition reform. Stan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Mike's departure is kind of indicative of the churn that's constantly going on in the innovation kind of portfolio or realm, whatever you want to call it, at the Defense Department. What do you see as you look across the entire department at where it's going on innovation and how those pockets are talking to each other. Welcome. It's good to see you, Francis, as always. So I, I think that I wouldn't put too much emphasis on, on the churn that Mike Brown's departure, he's been there four years. Uh, that's a long That's a long position. He's a former C, commercial CEO, of course. Um, and it's not unusual to have people changing positions. It is a six-year term, but he, four years is a, is a good run. So I don't think that there's any necessary mystery about his decision that this is a time to leave. It does come at a time where a couple of other senior, particularly in the Air Force, senior folks have left that have, uh, I'd say, some significant responsibility for the innovation or technology agenda. You've got Preston Dunlap, who is the uh, chief architect, uh, Space Force and the Air Force leaving. Uh, and then uh, Nick Chilin, who is the chief software officer um, for the Air Force. So those three together, people will look at it and go, what does this mean? Is there something going on? Uh, it could just be coincidence. But t- to your point, um, you know, and just to back up a step, when and, and you and I may probably talked about this, when, when Mike was first announced to be the undersecretary, um, I thought that was one of the most creative and interesting appointments that I had seen in, in a long time in, in government generally. Uh, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, it didn't work out, we, but what have you. But uh, that was a real signal, I think, that, that this, this team was going to be very serious about innovation. I think they still are, but I think it is unclear whether it's going to be really departmental or if it's going to be specific to to, to, to the services and their individual missions. So, for example, um, Air Force, Space Force in particular, is making a big push around commercial technology. They're talking a lot about innovation. 
uh, probably doing more than anybody else, at least visibly at this point. There was also legislation proposed. I, I frankly don't remember if it got into the bill or not. Uh, there was an amendment proposed that would require Space Force to use commercial technology, uh, which is really interesting. Um, there is legislation in the defense bill this year. There are a couple of more provisions around other transactions continuing to sort of encourage their use. But Space Force would probably be where you're going to see this most prominently. The second area that, that I'm going to be very interested to see play out, and Mike Brown talked about this in Brandy Vincent's piece, um, with, is Heidi Shu has the 14 critical technology areas. Not surprisingly, the vast majority of them are commercial technologies or have commercial analogs. We've known this for 30 years. This has been the case. So what does that mean in terms of actual action? And what are we actually going to be doing to capture them? And I think the piece that Brandy did with Mike actually highlights a few areas that, that, that make a lot of sense. So I think it's going to be specific to services. Um, I think there are other issues around uh, non-technology issues around acquisition and who's going to be pushing the acquisition envelope and where and how. And that'll really be where the, where the rubber hits the road. That piece that you're citing, we have linked in the show notes today at thedailyscooppodcast.com. And Brandy's conversation with Mike is going to be on the Defense Scoop podcast, new program that we have uh, from Scoop News Group over the next couple of weeks. Part one rolls out on this week's episode of the Defense Scoop podcast. You said a moment ago, Stan, that we don't know if there will be a strategy for department-wide innovation. There should be, shouldn't there? It strikes me that it's not necessarily healthy momentum-wise, especially when you consider how fast China's catching up, uh, for this to kind of be left to little pockets to grow wherever they grow. Well, I don't know if I put it in that context. So let's let's define the innovation we're talking about. You're, okay. you're, you're talking about mission innovation. You're talking about you're talking about the force, how we're, how, we're, how we're actually driving the defense strategy, innovative technologies, innovative solutions. Um, and so that because the services have a significant amount of control over their own requirements and their own programs, you're going to see that, I think. And they have, of course, a lot of control over their own acquisition processes, which is where, again, the rubber hits the road there. You can't do anything without an acquisition. Um, you're going to see it pocketed there. I think at the senior level, Heidi Shu, and also particularly with, with the deputy secretary, with Kath Hicks, I know that she's been asking and, and pushing some, some questions um, at the Defense Business Board and others around questions of what does customer experience mean as for the Department of Defense and how do we actually actualize that? And, and, and to your expect, point, it's not just a soldier trying to log on to do a household goods move. It's a soldier in the field having to have a technology to to get ordinance on target or, or do the reconnaissance and intel gathering and what have you. So you see with the Space Force, this whole thing with Space Delta 18 and the National Space Intelligence Center, which is supposed to be a vanguard of innovative intelligence gathering, by definition is also supposed to therefore be a vanguard of innovation. Uh, and Mike talks about some of the things, Mike Brown has talked about some of the things they can do uh, through, through, through the center. So I think Yes, there's a, a, a strategy might be the wrong term. Okay, I would say a, a, a department-wide leadership push and risk absorption, which is really where leaders come in, recognizing that execution is going to be at the service level. I, I, I agree with all of that. I guess the concern that I have as an outsider watching this is the gains, the real movement that organizations like USDS and 18F and others have seen on the civilian side have come when the distinctions between cutting edge mission delivery and back office functions 
are are removed or are ameliorated as much as possible. And so the distinction that you make between, say, a soldier's PCSing and somebody that is trying to deliver warfighting capability to tip of the spear, it strikes me removing that delineation would be useful too in the defense space. And that's what I'm not sure I've either, either I haven't seen it uh, or it, it's not out there yet. Yeah, I think I think that makes some sense. But I think there's a there's a vast difference here when you are talking about um, delivering warfighting capability to business operations, if you will. I mean, I think the differences are so stark. Um, and uh, but but let me just take your point again to, to build on it, because I, I, I don't disagree with you is, as you know, the report we did on OTAs a year ago. One of the things we identified is OTAs, other transactions authorities, which is really the way in which you get innovative technology. So it's a, a key path. Uh, we're having a terrible time transitioning OTAs to production. And so to me, an, a, an innovation agenda has to start with where are we on the path, on the journey, and what are the barriers to carrying it forward? If, if, we, if we now know, which we do, that we're not being very successful in taking new technology through another transaction and then getting it into production. We got to go deal with that problem because that becomes now a, a, a barrier. So it's it, that's part of the strategy. The strategy you got to be informed by where are the gaps and what are the what are the barriers? Because you're right. I mean, there's been a lot said. I think Preston Dunlap. I think it was Preston Dunlap when 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 he resigned um, uh, said that that you know China is eating our lunch on technology in in many ways. Yet we are still bogged down in a bureaucratic overload. Um, and, 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 and that's a, a challenge. I think the good news is that you've got, I, I do think that Kath Hicks is really thinking about this as the deputy secretary. And I think you also have some, some, some continued support from Congress. There's still some time with Congress, which is not the norm. You know, they, they don't have necessarily the longest patience, but there, even just one small piece, there was an amendment proposed uh, in, the, in the House bill, it's in the House bill, I think Mikey Sherrill from New Jersey was the sponsor, to allow the use of, of other transactions for uh, installations. In other words, how do we go to green energy at an installation? And using commercial buying capabilities to actually do solar powered uh, facilities. So again, yes, you're right that it would be good to see a broader strategy. I don't think it doesn't, that means it doesn't exist, but I think we are struggling a little bit in execution. Stan Soloway, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about the departure of Mike Brown at DIU and find a link to listen to the Defense Scoop podcast in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. The 13th year of Fed Talks launches August 24th. High-level leaders in government, industry, and academia will offer lightning talks, keynotes, and fireside chats. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more and sign up in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Federal employees are less satisfied with their jobs than previous years, according to the Partnership for Public Service. The 2021 Engagement and Satisfaction Score is 64.5. That's down four and a half points since the 2020 evaluation. Lauren DeYoung-Schulman's Vice President for Research and Evaluation at the Partnership. She's former Senior Advisor to the National Security Advisor. Lauren, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I stole the headline. Is what I have there really the headline in your view as somebody who's been immersed in this research? Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, Francis. Great to see you as always. That's the headline, but I'm not surprised by the headline. We had that 4.5 point drop 
in federal employee engagement and satisfaction. Got to remember what was going on in 2021. And this, the with that in mind, I'm not terribly shocked that employees were struggling. We had a brief moment of seeing infections go down towards the end of the year when the survey was administered. People were starting to decrease the amount of telework, start to come back to the office. And then Omicron, which was this huge shock to our system. And people were stressed around like, how do I do, how do I manage this? How do I accommodate all the stress around health, around going back to an office that is very different than the old office that I was in before at a time when federal employees only had a 1% pay raise. That's a lot less than what they saw this year, which is about 2.7%. And the Biden administration is looking for a historic pay raise next year. But 2021 was a tough year for federal employees from the beginning. And they, in addition to that, were having to respond to the front lines of COVID-19. They were implementing the Infrastructure Act, which is a historic investment in our country. They were managing the Afghan uh, evacuation and so many other things that were going on at a point where all of this stress was on them. So I'm not surprised. I do hope that we see some opportunities to get better in the future. You point out the timing of this, and that's interesting to me because obviously 2021 was delayed because of the pandemic. Yes. And so there's there's a wider gap there. And my understanding is the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey is already underway or in progress for 2022. And so we're going to have the 21 numbers and the 22 numbers kind of smashed up against each other. And I wonder what we should think about as we're looking at those 21 numbers and if what, if anything, we can derive from them to start long term planning about how to deal with employee issues today. Biggest message that leaders should take away from the 2021 results is that employees want more clarity and communication around what the workplace is going to look like. How have things changed since COVID-19? How are we going to continue to implement all these incredible innovations that we had during the pandemic? And what is my day-to-day work going to be like in what is really a transitional and new time? Leaders have had a chance to hear that, respond to it, and adapt to it to a degree. You're right, the survey is closing towards the end of this week. I hope that with that new information, leaders have had the chance to adapt a bit, to communicate more, to understand the stress that their employees are experiencing and try to give them more stability and flexibility in how they're going about their work. All right. Clarity and communication about the workplace of the future. You're exactly right. It's it's very reasonable for employees to want that. Is the communication of we don't know yet sufficient, though, to make that employee feel, okay, they're at least paying attention because everybody that I talk to, whether it's human capital, technology, management, whatever, nobody knows. I think employees spent parts of the pandemic appreciating the flexibility they had with flexible schedules, with telework, with some of the incredible benefits they received, and some of the ability to do and deliver their work better and more efficiently using digital technologies. What they want to hear is that those will be possible, not that we know exactly what it looks like, 
but all of these benefits we've derived that gives us a more satisfied, engaged, and effective workforce will be possible in some way in the future. One great thing that OPM did that seems small, but it's really important over in the last year is they added the ability on USA Jobs for employees to search for, or future employees to search for remote work options. So if you're applying for a job, you can find ones that just are remote or allow remote work. Employees want that sort of knowledge that, yeah, I could do this job in Wisconsin, and I want to know that that may be possible, even if the implementation of it takes a bit. Is there something here that indicates what we should look for in the 2022 numbers? Or is there something going on in the environment in which employees are working today that might give us a window to what to expect and and how these trends might turn or not turn? Great question. So one thing we say year after year is that leadership is the thing that drives engagement and satisfaction. We pointed out that last year, at the end of the year, only 55% of President Biden's nominated appointees had actually been confirmed by the Senate. That's gone up substantially since the end of last year. Still some struggles, but we will have far more senior leaders in place who have had the opportunity to make a difference in their employees' lives. That is one indicator to look for. Another one to look at is that there are a number of efforts right underway right now from the president's management agenda to improve the experience of employees and to recognize that this is a priority. And you've got senior leaders saying this across the board. Whether or not employee leaders are putting their money where their mouth is or their communication where their communication with their employees at the same as their talking points. That is a, a gap that I'll be interested in exploring, see if they're actually matching their policy statements with their actual actions on the ground. Final thing I'll say, this will be new in the 2022 survey. A couple of years ago, they cut out so many of the diversity, equity, and inclusion questions that were part of the FUVS. This year in 2022, they added a lot more of them, reflecting a major priority of the Biden administration. So I think we'll know not only how leaders are doing in implementing these strategies around engagement and satisfaction, but how they're impacting different diverse groups throughout the population. How are they experiencing how might Black employees, younger employees, more senior employees, LGBTQ employees be experiencing some of these challenges differently and where maybe targeted strategies be required? All right. A lot of horse race attention on the, this agency used to be last year. It was at number three and this year it's at number five and all of that kind of stuff. Were there any big moves underneath the top levels that jumped out at you, Lauren, as wow, they're really they've done something to move in the right direction or there's something there that they really need to pay attention to because they're struggling? Yeah, a great question. So they're in the top now, but it was thrilled to see Department of Veterans Affairs go from number eight to number five. They've worked really hard on this issue across their huge system over the last several years. Also point out um, some of the subcomponents at Health and Human Services, whether it be CDC, now the National Institutes of Health, SAMHSA, and others, they've had a tough couple of years with the responding to this health emergency we've been experiencing, and many of them are doing substantially better than they were. Last one I'll mention, uh, which is notable, so the U.S. Agency for Global Media used to be Broadcasting Board of Governors. They are, they are still in the bottom of the rankings for small agencies, but they were also the most improved. So they are in the, uh, the point of knowing they need to continue to get better, but they worked incredibly hard over the last several months to make those improvements. You mentioned the Department of Veterans Affairs and like five seconds after your research came out, I got an email press release from VA touting their gains. 
And I wasn't surprised, and it's for a reason that you mentioned a few moments ago in this conversation, Lauren. VA, a couple of years back, started treating their employees like customers and referring to them as customers and coming up with internal customer journeys about what their employees, and it, it strikes me this is the kind of effort that needs to go into that to make a difference, to really move the needle, as obviously VA has. And the reason that VA did this, I mean, one, it's the right thing to do, but two, they discovered that when their employees are more satisfied and engaged, they are performing better. They are delivering better services for veterans. They have more satisfied, healthier, um, more active veterans in their system. And all that it takes is that focus on employee engagement and satisfaction. So it's a great lesson for other agencies. Lauren DeYoung-Schulman, always great to see you. Thank you for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to the best places to work research from the partnership in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. Nominations are open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. We'd like you to nominate leaders in the federal IT community for their achievements and contributions. You can read more about how to nominate somebody through the link in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The military has a people problem. All the services report they're struggling to meet their recruiting goals for this year. Dan Sitterly's president and CEO of Sitterly Alliance Solutions. He's former principal deputy assistant secretary of the Air Force for Manpower and Reserve Affairs. Dan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I know that a problem is a really big problem when it makes the New York Times a big article yesterday about how it seems to me at least the struggle that the services are up against are the few people that are eligible to join, not so much that want to or don't want to, but that can't get in because of physical requirements. Am I reading this right, this challenge that the services are up against? Welcome, Dan. Yeah, thank you, Francis. Thank you for having me once again. Uh, Military recruiting is something I've been passionate about and have been tracking for some time now. Uh, I think it's both. I think it's the pool of eligibles uh, as well as those that are willing or what we call propensed to to serve. So I think the problem is a little bit of both. Um, You know, the eligibility pool uh, has continued to shrink, as you mentioned in the the article mentions, uh, but it it is at a low point now, perhaps the lowest point it's been since we've had the all-volunteer service. Uh, and I'm, I'm afraid we are in a bit of a crisis um, and perhaps the, the worst crisis that I've seen. And I think most people understand the problem with the eligibility pool now. Regrettably, you've got drug and substance abuse issues. Uh, obesity uh, is a big one. Uh, criminal record, health, fitness problems, uh, educational shortfalls. And these all shrink the eligibility pool of about 30 million young Americans between the ages of 17 and 24, they shrink it by 75%. uh, And that's continued to decline. Uh, Most recently, it was one in three, and now it's one in four. Uh, And then of that remaining pool, though, and I think this is an important point, Francis, uh, only about 10 to 12% of that remaining pool are willing to serve, uh, have the propensity to serve. I mean, we're talking some great quality Americans by the time you get to that point. And so they have college career paths, they have other opportunities. And undoubtedly, um, you know, the current pandemic, ha- pandemic has influenced the outcomes. I think uh, the economy uh, is influencing propensity a little bit. There's a lot of jobs out there that aren't filled. So it is a real problem. 
What is the solution, though, that the military can do anything about? Because if, if the population is not interested in service for whatever reason, that's problematic. That's not something that, that uh, a military service or the Defense Department as a whole can do to turn the ship around, to borrow a, a, a Navy analogy in very short order at all. That takes years and years and years. And the, the physical attributes too you know that's a a nationwide problem that's not just peculiar to military recruiting and that's also not something that they really have any authority or autonomy over yeah that's a a great question i think there are some short-term things that we can do uh, and some longer-term things that we need to do and i think the military is focused on the short term right now because the problem is present i mean it's it's this fiscal year it's meeting their goals to put people into basic training and into their uh, various training programs right now. And frankly, the summertime is when we tend to get the most folks uh, as they graduate from high school. uh, And they like to put them in what's called delayed enlistment programs so that you've got a bank of people because we have to smooth flow, uh, you know, our, our institutions that do the training throughout the year, you can't put everybody in at once. So I think short term, the military is doing some things. And, you know, most of them, unfortunately, involve uh, financial incentives. So really big signing bonuses. I mean, they're paying up to $50,000 in some instances to to bring people on. Uh, Those work to get people through the doors. uh, But if you weren't motivated or propensed to serve in the first place, uh, the moment you take that money and buy your big, red, shiny pickup truck or whatever else you buy with it, all of a sudden your propensity to serve um, you know, is gone. Uh, and so you've got a lot of problems with that group of people. Uh, bigger retention uh, bonuses are being used as well. Uh, for every person that you retain in the military, that's theoretically one less person you have to bring in. Uh, so those work short time, uh, short term as well, Francis. Uh, but remember now you've got four structure issues too. I, we don't want everybody to re-enlist. Um, you know, we can't have all senior military folks. You need some folks out there fixing airplanes and, you know, driving tent tanks and, you know, doing some of that work where uh, first term uh, military folks are the right solution. So they work short term. Uh, an idea that I think the military needs to explore if they haven't already uh, right now is to focus on older recruits. Um, recruiters do tend to focus on graduating high school seniors Uh, There was a recent RAND report uh, that came out this week, um, actually, that finds that older recruits uh, have actually a higher propensity to serve. Um, They're, in many cases, more educated. They may have tried junior college for a year or two and didn't like it, or they may have tried the workforce and uh, didn't like it. Uh, They have different life experiences. Uh, They find that they get promoted at faster rates um, and that they re-enlist at a higher rate. Now, one downfall to getting older recruits is they do tend to attrit from basic training at a higher rate, but they make up for that because they retain higher in a first-term enlistment. So, so frankly, that's a good thing because you've invested you know, less at basic training uh, and you don't want people to attrit before the end of their first enlistment. So then you know, let's take that concept and then couple that with an expansion of the student loan repayment program. Uh, and I think that you may increase both your pool and the propensity. So I think, you know, the military is doing some of those things right now. Uh, but I think we need to focus on solving it uh, longer term. 
and and so I have some ideas uh, on that as well. Yeah, I want to walk through those in a second because the long term view of this strikes me as tremendously important. What I didn't see in the in the New York Times piece was I didn't see a discussion or an analysis of what this means five years down the road because you don't just have a recruitment problem today. I imagine, I imagine you have potentially a promotion problem two years from now and five years from now and 10 years from now. Exactly. So it does impact your force structure and promotions and uh, all of those things downstream. And so um, I, I think here's the problem in my view. I think civic education that emphasizes national service is missing in action uh, in America, quite frankly. Uh, I think you know teachers and politicians and role models uh, rarely discuss or they discuss it less than when I was growing up the value of public and military service. And so I think we need an all out campaign on national service. I think that's first. And I think it has to be directed from above. Um, and this isn't going to solve itself overnight. And I think uh, it has to involve all Americans, you, me, getting the onesie, uh, you know, and starting uh, onesie for my grandson uh, so that they understand that there are different career choices that they can make uh, at a younger age. I also think we have a branding problem uh, in the military, which negatively impacts the propensity to serve. Um, the senior enlisted advisor to the chairman, uh, Chief Colon Lopez, uh, CZ, we call him, uh, had a great quote at the Joint Women's Leadership Symposium the other day. He called for less interneting and more interacting. Uh, and when it comes to uh, increasing eligibility pools of military, when it comes to increasing propensity, uh, I think it couldn't be more accurate. Uh, we need more open base orientations. Uh, you know, we have fewer bases than we used to. When I was a kid, I was propensed to join the Air Force uh, because I went to Griffiths Air Force Base in upstate New York uh, for a Boy Scout uh, encampment, a retreat. Uh, I saw the B-52s flying overhead and it, I thought, how cool is that? And that one interaction uh, is what led me to joining the Air Force for almost 40 years. I think that um, we need more military interaction with the public. I think we need more air shows. And quite frankly, here's one for you. We need more Top Gun movies. Uh, I, I mean, seriously, the Navy and the Air Force, both with the original Top Gun, saw something like a 500% increase in the people that walked into recruiting offices. Uh, so I hope Top Gun Maverick uh, has the same thing. And frankly, the Navy needs a movie too. And so <laughs> I think, you know, I think we could work with Hollywood uh, to, to try to do some of these positive things that reflect uh, the military and what it really is. And, and that obviously is national security and defense of our nation and those sorts of things. But it's also the camaraderie of working in teams and meeting people and growing and traveling and the experiences. And um, I think that we need to do a better job of allowing our young folks at an early age, and it might be in a onesie, uh, to, to sort of develop, uh, you know, those career choices at a young age. Dan, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much for coming on. You've got onesie on the brain, as you told me before we started recording. You've got a new grandson, and congratulations on him. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Francis. It's, it's always a pleasure, and I do think this is a national crisis, and it's going to take all of us uh, to solve it. So let's see what we can do.
You can read more about the military's people problem in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. If you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop Podcast is back tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.